Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Hi there. This morning, I want to talk to you about the baptism of Jesus that we find in Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 3 verses 21 and following and we're at the cusp of a new era of course as John the Baptist is uh, recorded in Luke as having uh, been uh, about to be put into prison it's the end of the spotlight being on John the Baptist and now it's the beginning of a new era John the Baptist has said that the kingdom of God is near and Jesus of course is going to bring that kingdom into the present and it tells us in the passage that John is 30 years of uh, sorry Jesus is 30 years of age when he begins his ministry now we read in Numbers chapter uh, 4 that the uh, priests would begin their ministry, the Levites would begin their ministry when they turn 30 years of age. And we also find that David becomes king at the age of 30. And so as Jesus begins his ministry at the age of 30, he is going to be the priest and the king who is going to minister to us. Now, of course, We find in this passage that there's a lot of water around down by the River Jordan and uh, Kate and I visited the River Jordan. Uh, I'm not here by the River Jordan at the moment, uh, but there's a lot of water around. Now, water is a very big theme in our Bibles. We find that uh, at the very beginning of Genesis that uh, the spirit hovered over the face of the waters. And then the waters were kind of divided and separated into land uh, and sea. And then man emerged, life emerged out of the waters. We find in the account of Noah, of course, that he passed through the waters of judgment into a new world. And we find, of course, as well at the time of Moses, that he goes with the people through the Red Sea and is passes through the waters into freedom. And again, at uh, a generation later with Joshua at the River Jordan, they cross the waters through the waters into the promised land. So now at the dawning of, at, of this most momentous of eras, Jesus will pass through the waters and bring us into life and freedom and promise. A new exodus is going to happen as Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. Now, Jesus is about to begin his ministry, as I said, and he needs to be fully prepared for this ministry that he is about to start. If you like, he needs to be kind of match fit for what he's about 
to embark upon in his three and a half year ministry, which begins at this point. And how does he prepare for this big time that he's going to begin? Well, he begins with his baptism. Perhaps we're quite surprised. In fact, the early church was potentially a, a little bit embarrassed at the thought that Jesus was baptized. It kind of suggests that uh, Jesus maybe was not superior to John if he was baptized by John. And yet all four Gospels include the account of Jesus' baptism. And Luke includes it and he puts it almost in a quite a matter-of-fact kind of way that as the crowds came forward to be baptized so Jesus also amongst the crowds he was there in the crowds he also stood in line to be baptized. Now it might be quite surprising to us that he was baptized by John when you remember that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance repentance from sins and we know that Jesus never sinned he didn't need to repent of any sins so why was he baptized and we read in Matthew's gospel that Jesus says no John it's okay go ahead and baptize me because you're keeping these people waiting no he doesn't say that but he says it's right that I should be baptized let it be so for righteousness sake that I now am baptized it's the right thing for me to do we find that Jesus is constantly obedient to everything that God wants him to do and here at his baptism again he's doing the right thing quite possibly also of course Jesus is identifying with us with sinful man as he is baptized though he is without sin nevertheless he identifies with us who are sinful and this prefigures his full and final identification with us when he is numbered amongst the transgressors and when he dies upon the cross. And so Jesus is baptized in obedience and we see that perfect obedience demonstrated again here at the beginning of his ministry. You know, if God is going to use us, we need to be ready to do everything that God wants us to do, to obey him in every area. Is there anything that God is asking you to do at this time in which you need to be obedient to him? But there's another challenge here. We find that Jesus, as he comes out of the water, he is praying. And it tells us that the Holy Spirit came upon him and God spoke as he prayed. You see, Jesus, we find right through Luke's gospel, is passionate in his prayer life. Again and again and again, we find that Jesus is praying passionately. Now listen, folks, if Jesus prayed passionate, passionately, if the eternal Son of God needed to pray, then surely we also need passionately to show our dependence on God in prayer as well and so Jesus prays and as he's praying it tells us that three things happen the first is this heaven opens quite literally 
It's like the heavens are parted. The skies are kind of ripped asunder. It's a physical manifestation that takes place. It's, it maybe was like a light shard coming from the sky, a blinding shard of light. Somehow the skies were supernaturally sundered. This was a momentous moment, as often we find in the Bible at the time of Ezekiel or Stephen or Paul or Peter or John in the book of Revelation. The skies are opened as God is about to do something momentous. But we then find, secondly, that the Spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove. And again, in Luke's gospel, uniquely, we're told that it really is actually a dove that circles and flutters down through the parted skies and alights on Jesus. And this dove, of course, is symbolic of the Holy Spirit who is coming upon Jesus to anoint him in his humanity for the ministry he is about to begin. We need the Holy Spirit to anoint us to do the mission that he's called us to do as well. But this, we do need to ask the question, why a dove? You see, in rabbinic uh, literature, in Hebrew literature, in the Old Testament, the dove seems a very unusual picture. In fact, it's never used uh, up until this moment, apart from perhaps we could see the dove at the time of Noah. But the dove is never used until this moment as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Why a dove? And I love what um, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, says about this. He was president of Magdalen College at Oxford, and he says that the dove is a wonderful symbol and a perfect symbol of Jesus' ministry because the dove depicts gentleness, which suits the temper of the ministry that Jesus is about to begin. And he says this, a dove, you know, is the most meek and the most innocent of all birds, without gall, without talons, having no fierceness in it, expressing nothing but love and friendship to its mate in all its carriages and mourning over its mate in all its distresses. And accordingly, a dove was the most fit emblem of the spirit that was poured out upon our Saviour when he was just about to enter upon the work of our salvation. For as sweetly as doves do converse with doves, so may every sinner and Christ converse together. He says that, yeah, yeah, Jesus is a lion, Jesus is a warrior, but Jesus is gentle. He says, doesn't he, that he is gentle and lowly in heart, we read in Matthew chapter 11. How beautiful and inviting it is for us to know that though Jesus is mighty, though he is the mighty son of God, as we shall see, yet he comes to us gently as a dove. He comes in compassion and grace. He comes and he says to us, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. It's like almost an ironic statement there in Matthew. You know, my burden is almost like a non-burden. My yoke is 
so light that actually it helps you rather than burdens you. It would be a little bit like if I was drowning in the water and someone threw a life raft to me and I were to say, well, no, 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 I don't want to put that life raft around me. I don't want another burden on me when I'm drowning already. Thank you very much. But actually what we don't realize is that as we put that raft around us, it's actually there to save us and rescue us rather than to add a burden to us. Jesus didn't come to add further burdens to us. Yes, being a Christian is challenging, but ultimately he lightens our load. He saves us. He comes gently to us to rescue us tenderly, compassionately. Maybe you're struggling at the moment. Maybe it's tough for you at this time. Do you know that Jesus comes in compassion to you? His, his main characteristic is gentleness and grace towards us, his frail and needy people. And so we can come to him knowing that his yoke is easy. Now, the third thing that happens at Jesus' baptism, we've seen that the skies part, we've seen that the dove of the Spirit comes upon him to anoint him for his ministry. And the third and final thing that happens is that a voice speaks from heaven. Now, we've had the two visual signs, but now we have a verbal event, the voice of God speaking from heaven. Now, in Luke's gospel, we do find that there have been voices up until this point. God has spoken through angels to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and so on. God has spoken through his Holy Spirit gently and quietly to Zechariah and Simeon and Anna and so on. But now, for the first time at this momentous occasion, God audibly speaks from heaven like a thunderclap out of heaven, speaking this huge momentous time, God speaking to his son and of his son out of heaven. And what does he say? Well, this heavenly voice splices together two significant Old Testament references. He says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is my son is a reference to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2 we read of how uh, God says, uh, this is my son, my beloved son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will make the nations your inheritance. It speaks there of this royal son, this powerful son, this son who uh, we should serve, who uh, we should fear and tremble before, this son who we should kiss lest he should be angry. He is God's mighty son, the king of kings. And so that's the first reference here. But then the voice says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And that is a reference to Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah chapter 42, we read, Behold, my servant, my chosen one, in whom is my delight. I have put my spirit on him. 
and he will not cry aloud. A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. He will come in tender mercy. A picture there in contrast to Psalm 2, which is speaking about the powerful Son of God. Here in Isaiah 42, we're reading about the suffering servant, the one who would again tenderly come, not to crush people, not to snuff out a smouldering wick that's struggling to survive, but who would rather come in tender servant ministry to redeem and to save and to lift up the broken. This Jesus is the one whom the Father delights in. Now, why is he pleased with Jesus? Why at this point, as Jesus is being baptised, does God speak from heaven and put on such a big display and say, I'm pleased with my son? Well, I guess there's two aspects to this. The first is that God is pleased with his son retrospectively because of what Jesus has already done in the past 30 years of his life. You see, Jesus has come and been incarnated as a baby. The father is pleased with his son that he did that. And Jesus has lived 30 years in obscurity, in humility, in the seclusion of the town of Nazareth, working obediently as a carpenter, looking after his family, humbly perfecting obedience over 30 years, 30 winters of perfect obedience in which he has humbled himself, in which he has learnt perfect obedience. His soul has been seasoned over 30 years of silent preparation in obscurity and the father is pleased with his perfect son's obedience. But the father is also pleased with his son's obedience that is going to come now and is going to culminate in the cross where he will perfectly obey and offer his life as a sacrifice which will be pleasing to God. Jesus, his perfect righteousness is pleasing to God. And you know, what's amazing for us is this, that that perfect righteousness, that active righteousness of Jesus will ultimately be credited to us so that ultimately God will be pleased with us because we have received the very righteousness of Jesus Christ for ourselves. In him, we have become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be righteousness for us. And Jesus is going to go to the cross and it is going to please the Lord, as it tells us in Isaiah 53, to bruise him so that we might be forgiven and healed and saved. And so God is pleased with his son. Just picture the scene with me here, folks, for a minute, would you? It is quite an amazing scene. Down by the River Jordan, we have the crowds watching, just another man in the line about to be baptised, goes into the water, 
is baptized by John, comes out of the water and is praying and suddenly the heavens open. The spirit comes upon him and a voice comes from heaven. And we suddenly see this incredible display of the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead manifest together in one place by the River Jordan. We see the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, emerging out of the waters in fervent prayer. We see the third person of the Trinity descending like a dove upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And we hear the first person of the Trinity, the Father, declaring, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Holy Trinity is rejoicing at the Jordan as they celebrate together the beginning of the official ministry of the Son of God. You see, we need to understand that all of the personhood of God is involved in our salvation. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are working in perfect consort together to save us. This salvation package is comprehensive. It is for all people and it has the full backing of heaven. That means that God is able to save completely. He is able to save us to the uttermost. All of God is committed to this plan of salvation, which will be for all people and will save us in every way. You know, whatever your situation, whatever you need to be saved from, you are not beyond God's ability to save you, to heal you, to deliver you, to rescue you, to redeem you out of trouble and out of difficulty. God is committed to your full and final salvation. You may be in a relational mess that you think you cannot extricate yourself from. Well, the Trinity would disagree. He can and will save you from it. You may be in a moral mess that you think you cannot get out of, but the Holy Trinity is committed to enabling you to do that if you will just reach out and let him do that. You may be in a place where you think you're beyond the reach of God. You may think that you're the kind of person that God cannot save, but that is not true. He can save you fully and to the uttermost. And there is no person that is outside the remit of God's ability to completely and perfectly save them. The whole of God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are committed to you and to your salvation in every way possible. Now, I haven't got time to spend on this, but of course, after Jesus' baptism, we do read of his genealogy. We read of uh, the accounts there. We read of uh, how he has a family tree, a family line that goes back. Now, there is some dispute about this because, of course, the genealogy in Luke's gospel is different from that that we find in Matthew's gospel. Uh, and certainly from Abraham through to David, it is a different 
uh, or sorry, from David through to Jesus, it's a different genealogy. Many of the names are different and scholars have puzzled over this. Suffice to say that I'm satisfied with the uh, explanation that in Luke, we have the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. Um, and uh, in Matthew, it is through Joseph, through his father, and that uh, Jesus is, as it were, um, uh, we're reading of the kind of adopted line through Joseph, but it's Mary's line going back to David's. But what is important about this genealogy is this, that it takes us back to two people. It takes us back, first of all, to Adam. It takes us back all the way back to Adam, the son of Adam, it says. And what that tells us is that Jesus is a man. He is the son of Adam. But where Adam, of course, failed and sinned, and we too have done the same, yet the second Adam will not sin and will not fail. And so he is a man, and yet not like any other man, a man who is perfect in every way and therefore able to save us in every way. And the final thing we see is that it goes back even further than that. It tells us in the genealogy, Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. There's no other place in the Bible where we have a genealogy that takes us back to the son of God. But here uniquely we see that Jesus is not only the son of Adam, but also the son of God. He is uniquely the son of God who is able to save us. You see, Christ, the son of God, becomes a son of Adam so that we, the sons of Adam, might become sons of God. That is what Jesus has come to do, to make us sons and daughters of the living God.